I V M. The neighborhood foreign policy that I had the privilege to put into practice, what is termed the Gujral Doctrine, represented a modern-day continuation of this very traditional theme. I do believe that the latter half of the 20th century will be recalled in times to come as the age of regional cooperation. Such cooperation has, after all, been the impulse behind the contemporary world's most striking economic miracles. Europe, which was all but devastated after two world wars, today has a common currency, a common parliament, and a unified politico-military structure. Latin America, Southeast Asia, South Africa are witness in varying degree to similar economic transformations. Is it not time that we in South Asia also try and look ahead instead of remaining trapped in the past, forever the victims of a frozen medieval mindset? As and when South Asia decides to take control of its destiny, no outsider will come to show us the lead. We will have to do it ourselves. And India, as the natural leader of South Asia, will be called upon to walk that extra mile, to make that extra contribution that leadership of any nature entails. That is the logic behind the Gujral Doctrine. That is why, to the well-established principles of Panchshila, I felt necessary in the context of our smaller South Asian neighbours to add the novelty of non-reciprocal treatment. Diplomacy, properly handled, can be a positive-sum game in which there are no losers and all participants benefit. Regional cooperation in South Asia is an idea whose time has come. It is bound to take off. And when it does, it will bring immense benefits to each individual country and to the subcontinent as a whole. It is this larger prize that we must firmly keep in mind. This is an excerpt from a speech by former Prime Minister I.K. Gujral at the Indian History Congress on 30th December 1998. Gujral refers to his namesake doctrine, which called for India to pursue better relations with her neighbours. Two decades after Gujral's painstaking work to mend ties with the neighbourhood, how does South Asia fare? Every week on the show, we break down an aspect of global affairs and foreign policy with the help of an expert on the field. And this week, we're turning to the neighbourhood. Much of our mind space on foreign policy, particularly in the neighbourhood, is spent on Pakistan. But that is such a narrow and limiting way to think about a region that is rich and dynamic. It's been a happening year in South Asia. Elections, domestic squabbles, development, they've all been on the agenda. And I wanted to figure out how we could break all of this down. My guest for today is Devi Rupa Mitra. Devi Rupa is the deputy editor and the diplomatic correspondent at The Wire. For the last 15 years, she's worked as a journalist on almost every beat, from transport to the civic beat on city desks. For the past seven years, she's been tracking developments in Indian foreign policy with a special interest in India's neighborhood. So I thought there was no better person to talk to about what's happening in the Indian subcontinent. But before we begin, let's hear from IVM Podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another great week on the IVM Podcast. It's been a really fun week. Also, just a reminder, if you're not following us on social media, please do. We're IVM Podcasts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. One thing that we are trying to do as much of as possible, and we want to keep doing this, is if you hear something that you really enjoy, take a screenshot of it and tag us on uh, whatever social media platform you prefer, and we'll try and repost that. 
If you want to keep your listening light and funny this week, check out shows like Cyrus Says, Golgappa, and the Empowering Series. On Cyrus Says, Cyrus talks to hosts of another IBM show, Football Shootball, Gaurav Sapre, Karthik Ayer, and Sivram Padmanabhan. Tune in to listen to some fun conversation about sports, advertising, and Bollywood. On Golgappa, Tripti is joined by cinematographer Milan Zog, who shares rip-tickling stories from his shoots. And on the Empowering Series, Zarina is joined by comedian Suresh Menon. They talk about his early days in comedy, his chemistry with Jose, and how he started Khan Masti. If pop culture is what's going to get your engine going this week, then, you know, we got shows like Geek Fruit, where Tejas and Disney this week are rounding up the hits and misses of announcements made at Disney's D23 Expo. Mr. and Mrs. Binge Watch, you know, I mean, like, that's a really fun show where Janice and Aru talk about TV showrunner Genji Kohan and her extremely successful Netflix shows. That's Orange is the New Black, and I can't remember the other one, but they've got another really good one, too. On IVM Likes, Abbas, Antriksh, and Darius discuss the film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and rate their top five Tarantino films. Man, I wish they'd call me to do that. So if you only have a really short time and you want to check out some of our shorter stuff, you can check out Origins of Things, where Chuck narrates a brand origin story involving a tabloid and a gold digger. It's going to be fun guessing which brand this is. And on The Habit Coach, Ashton shares some interesting facts about coffees and afternoon naps. And also don't forget to check out Urmi Kothari on the Kinetic Living podcast, where she has Thriving Thursdays and Tabata Tuesdays, both of which are, well, if you want to be fit, you should do those things. On our new coming-of-age show, Agla Station Adulthood, host Ritasha and Ayushi discuss casual dating, hookups, and modern-day love. On Keeping It Queer, Naveen and Farhad talk to producer Madhuri Adwani about body image issues. But with that, let's get you on with the show. Welcome back to States of Anarchy. I'm Hamsini Hariharan and I'm talking to Devi Rupa Mitra about what's happening in South Asia. Hi, Devi. Welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm very happy to be speaking to you. Hi. <laughs> so, when uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi first took office back in 2014, one of the first things he did was for his inauguration, he invited... all the heads of state from across south asia uh, and that's something that he did again in 2019 uh, and since then people have been talking about you know like neighborhood first uh, and all of that uh, so how do you think generally india's policy towards the neighborhood has been evolving in the last 5 years um when uh, prime minister modi had invited all this uh, sark members in 2014 it was rather a great surprise to most of us because Uh, due to the election campaign we were all expecting that he would his first priority would be uh, domestic issues and economy and we didn't expect him to actually go this big on international issues and this is i would say one of his more uh, interesting uh, aspects of his five years has been how, how much uh, focus he has put on international relations and that has actually is been part of his whole entire image building also to have a kind of a statesman like i don't know mood yeah, perhaps yeah. that what, perhaps that's how you would describe it or an image right uh, yeah image and but it has been helpful in a way because if you are saying i mean the branding is there that it's a neighborhood first policy which is i would say i mean it's a brand so in a in a way it's basically a just a reflection of what is happening but it is a, does put a certain level of i would say pressure on bureaucrats to deliver certain certain uh, for example the commitments that have been made but it also is not exactly a reflection of what what has happened so far because i think south asia had always been kind of the major uh, priority for each government i mean if you basically even if you look at the indian foreign service which are the most uh, coveted um, post for foreign service officers basically ambassadorship in the neighborhood that's how they see the career moving forward and then for example even in headquarters mm-hmm. uh, the joint secretary in charge of the neighboring countries were the most important and most in, because they were directly basically under the foreign secretary 
So they used to get obviously the most attention. And even foreign aid, right? Like consistently Absolutely. over the last couple of years, you have countries like Bhutan, Nepal, mm-hmm. Sri Lanka, all of them getting the biggest chunks of Indian foreign aid. Yeah, I mean, and obviously Bhutan had always got the lion's share. Mm-hmm. I mean, I won't say this unproportional because mm-hmm. we there's a certain level of relationship that we have with Bhutan which we don't have with other countries, mm-hmm. and the kind of closeness that we have. and the uh, i mean we basically kind of finance their five year plans over the years which we don't do for the other countries yeah, yeah so but there's also this fear that we're sort of losing the neighborhood you know india is often accused of high handedness for example nepal in 2015 when the earthquake struck uh, everyone said uh, in india they've said oh you know our planes landed 20 minutes after the first quake and yeah that's quake. what the media how that's how the media projected basically yeah but from the nepali side they said yes but this is our sovereign airspace you can't take flights off 20 minutes and then send them over to kathmandu mm-hmm. at your whim mm-hmm. uh, and this is something that we see a lot of strains of across the neighborhood mm-hmm. uh, what do you think about that i think a part of it is basically the relationship w- between a very big country and there smaller countries around the uh, around their periphery and i think it's a natural um, it's i i would be have been very surprised if we didn't have this kind of friction between countries where they're so disproportionate in their development or their size or their population and the dependence on each other so uh, and it is a natural progression i mean if you look at their domestic politics uh, it is a natural progression for them how would a politician for example in nepal I mean, when they're talking of nationalism, I mean, because nationalism is obviously the most important uh, cachet for any politician. Yeah, yeah. So how would they basically talk about nationalism, say in Nepal or any other small country, when they're going to the polls? Mm. It is obviously would be you know linked to the biggest country and how to basically show that they are you know different from them. Yeah. So it it is a natural. I don't think that there's a much uh, you know we should get too worried about this friction because it will always happen even if we have very good relations with the government. So there will always be this kind of friction underneath. Yeah, and like traditional like foreign policy researchers will also be like that's what they need to do. Like mm-hmm. smaller states will have to sort of hedge against the larger state to extract Absolutely. more concessions and Absolutely. things from them. So in in the sense, if you look for a from a, a smaller state perspective, the for them the role of China is quite welcome mm. because it helps them to get competition from other countries that you know that was like reading about for example about Bangladesh uh, the um, the Bangladesh Prime Minister just went to uh, China mm. and she got a whole load of billions of dollars of uh, investment from there pledges of investment I'm not saying that this happened another I think one point seven million of loans also for okay. power projects. Mm. but like that's how they do it that and i after that basically indian officials and india would be basically you know scramble to get their projects online mm. so that uh, and then japan will come into it the mix mm. and so on and so forth that's how they basically are like they are also aware that this is how geopolitics works that if they will go to china then basically us japan yeah, india yeah. will start looking at them more seriously and like because you mentioned polls and like nationalism becoming like the flavor of the season every time any country goes to election but it's been like a big year like the last two years have been like a big year for elections across south asia mm-hmm. like last year sri lanka maldives bhutan mm-hmm. uh, went to the polls this oh, year sri lanka sorry this year sri lanka went like it's going yeah going to be it's yeah, going to go to the polls and last year uh, bangladesh went to the polls pakistan went to the polls mm-hmm. uh, and in all of those you could sort of see strains of you know should we support projects by india should we support projects by pakistan 
I think one area this was very apparent was the Maldives, mm-hmm. right? And you had worked a lot on the Maldives at that point. And how do you think it played out in like the Maldivian uh, scenario? I think it was Maldives was very interesting election wise, but in that sense, that you had a, a party which was very pro India. I mean, uh, Maldives uh, MDP uh, led by Nasheed and. Which had Soli as the Ibrahim Soli as his candidate at that time, and I think most Maldivians were quite unhappy with the uh, you know with the kind of entirely Chinese tilt that they had seen, and they because there is a frankly uh, all these um, closeness, all these you know most of the Maldivians have come to uh, Kerala, Tiruvananthapuram, mm. they have a big base there, mm. so they have been there and they know that you know if any friction. takes place it does affect them directly because they have seen it before mm. india had used the visa as a uh, i wouldn't say weapon but earlier visa issue as a weapon earlier much before that oh, okay. when the gmr issue was kind of at the when hole, was that after the gmr okay. uh, thing had happened and if i can't it was not exactly related to gmr but there was a uh, what other is the, what is gmr just for people who don't know like Uh, the JMR is basically um, the JMR group. Mm. Uh, they had got a contract to develop and operate the Mali International Airport, mm. and then basically, then the there was a whole nationalism mm. campaign that had been uh, run by the contract had been given during the MDP time when okay. Nasheed was a president. Okay. So the opposition, which was basically led by a lot of people who are now actually with MDP, mm. the government. uh they had basically said no that this is against the sovereign uh, mm. you know this violates the sovereignty this How is a bit out international airport exactly mm. and that basically they are, the gmr group is going to get a lot of money mm. that they are not exactly giving a fair deal to them and so it was basically naturally uh, after nasheed was uh, resigned so called resigned and he claimed that it was a coup uh then the, after the new government came in under mohammad wahid uh so they basically you uh, know naturally uh, cancelled the contract mm. and then jmr went to arbitration okay. uh, the singapore and they won the arbitration finally and the government has now to give money to them so that was a whole jmr thing so after that when it happened so there were a, a lot of uh, unhappiness mm. between the government the indian government and the maldives maldivian government so they were had used the for example they even had used economic measures in a sense for example we uh, india gave subsidies mm. to maldives for a lot of uh, at least seven essential items because obviously they can't grow a lot of things yeah, there yeah. for example even con- construction material mm. so we have a certain quota mm. for subsidies that subsidized material which is given to them every year okay. so india had basically cut down on how much can be exported right. which included important co- construction material um, because obviously they can't don't have quarries and, and stuff so india had used all these things at that time but um, so it was a quite a interesting 5 years uh, and a very very interesting 5 years because it showed basically how india i mean it, it didn't push the government basically yamin government to mm-hmm. fall mm-hmm. in the sense so it was basically uh, i don't think there was an underlying anti india um, sentiment say like which is overtly there in for example nepal mm-hmm. or in bangladesh mm-hmm. i mean even i would say sri lanka I don't think that there is a overt anti-India feeling there, but obviously everybody has their own sense of sovereignty. You know, mm-hmm. whatever if you, whatever you say that you cannot say that Maldives is a, is a part of India or yeah, anything yeah. like that. It, it really, it it is Absolutely. very important. They're an own sovereign state. Exactly. You know, they have people who really are nationalistic at the end, of and they should that's be. Fair. I mean, yeah. that's and that's a natural tendency in the same way that Indians are nationalists. Of course, of course. How about small you are, mm-hmm. but. so in a, in a, i don't think it was a matter of um, 
I, I think what they basically were worried about the Maldivian people is basically that they were becoming too dependent on China, maybe mm. because especially with China would not is quite far off, mm. whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, and and the India is the next door neighbor, mm. and there had been worries about uh, you know because India most of these people then come to India for their studies, mm. uh, for their uh, medicals uh, facilities. So there had been under, after India had done that there had been some underlying a little bit of uh, trepidation I think among Maldivians that India could do it again, hmm. uh, but India has not done that has not been as uh, strident in in Maldives on in um, targeting these people to people issues hmm. as compared to say you would say about uh, Nepal in okay. Nepal it did the blockade. But here it was. It knew that basically. I think it was much more careful, maybe because you have different people mm. looking after different desks. So obviously, you know, personal uh, how a you know, bureaucrat mm. or different bureaucrats look at different relationships do matter in that sense. So in that sense, um, I think Maldives was very interesting. I found it very interesting how they basically uh, kept away in a way out of the spotlight mm. uh, from directly. Um, commenting on what was happening inside Maldives but it basically did at the same time it did basically uh, come into it was very much active behind the scenes mm. especially in pushing uh, you know all the western countries EU mm. U- US and UK to say what it wanted to say but without so it did what it wanted to but without the kind of the directly facing the spotlight so to say I don't know yeah. if it makes sense no, it does, and I think like if you go a little further back from just these elections mm. and whatever, you see what happened with uh, Mohammad Gayoom mm. and his half brother Yamin. That played out. Also, it had huge overturns of this man supports China versus this man supports India, and uh, even though it was a very uh, much part of the Maldivian democracy, uh, it also played out in the neighborhood yeah. as something like in that. In fact, Yami is the one who basically said that we have India first policy, and mm. then he came here. Before the, uh, I, I believe it was before the Commonwealth uh, Ministerial Group was basically supposed to have a meeting on Maldives. Hmm. He came here suddenly. Okay. Uh, I've forgotten the dates, which year was it. And that's it. But he came here suddenly to ask for help. And this was after the relationship has between, with India had soured. Huh. But he came here and he said, and India said, we will help you and all that. India did help in a sense, but because basically India's policy has been that we don't want other multilateral groups to basically target one country. Hmm. That has been India's general stance over the years. So in so in that sense, it has. I don't know if it's a way that they are basically uh, when the Maldivian voter goes to the polls, they are basically um, you know choosing a pro-India party or that's not. I don't or a pro-China party. Yeah. That's not the topmost priority for them because uh, I think it's more corruption issues mm. for them right now. Uh, corruption issues and how basically Yamin had been. Uh, Going down on the opposition, jailing all of them, basically. And the media. Uh, yeah. Uh, exactly. So, I don't think when they're pressing, when they're signing away on the ballot mm. paper, that's the first priority. True. But it is there in their mind. I mean, they know that basically this guy, I mean, it will be a difficult time with India mm. if Yamin is, remains there. Fair enough. Uh, c- comparing it with how things have unfolded in Sri Lanka, for example, which is mm. right next door, but went through uh, a very different trajectory, I think, over the last five, six years. Mm-hmm. So, uh, think about what happened with Rajapakshe mm-hmm. and 
the whole uh, idea that uh, the port was going to be leased out to china for 100 mm-hmm. years and then sri lankan people saying this is uh, they're giving up our sovereignty mm-hmm. and then people saying oh this is an example of china's debt trap diplomacy mm-hmm. and all of that coming into play so and at that point in time india also took like a slow back seat and didn't go oh i told you that this would happen oh, they did tell them i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure it did happen but yeah. like not overtly at yeah. least uh, but how do you think uh, at the same time like domestic politics in sri lanka have evolved over the last couple of years i think it has become more extreme right mm-hmm. now i mean the elections are basically after the easter sunday um, last is basically it's becoming quite ugly the whole sinhala extremism that is being and the amount of fake news that have been going around it's quite astounding i mean we shouldn't be astounded by that staying in india That's true. but uh, it's quite ugly in that sense so and thing become uglier even Um, so but again it's not a i don't think that they are looking at a pro india and a pro china issue here yeah. again um, because it, i mean if you remember rajapakshe obviously was not in the good books but when modi went there he met mm. rajapakshe yeah rajapakshe was here invited for some events mm. he came here for a lecture um, invited by um, mr subramanian swami oh, really? in delhi <laughs> last year okay so it was and then he had met with the uh, prime minister at that mm. time so it's not a, as a uh, you know black and white situation for rajapakshe that they because he, they also know that basically india is quite uh, prickly about these issues about military issues so let's see what happens there true and i think it's also a very interesting time for sri lanka as a nation because first you have sirisena and vikram singe have this very like tenuous coalition uh, and they're often speaking out against each other then you have uh, the local elections that happened a year or two ago in which rajapakshe actually won a fair hmm. amount of them hmm. um and all of this also goes back to the idea that it's not just india that's on the agenda it's not just china that's on the agenda hmm. there are a lot of local issues that are exactly. going in it's still a country that's reeling from civil war hmm. and now trying to figure out how they feel about things like terrorism exactly so exactly i feel feel like basically local issues are the major uh, topics in all these elections be it maldives be it um, Sri Lanka, Bhutan, 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 Nepal. To an extent, I would say Nepal is a bit of outlier there. How so? In a sense, I think the anti-India sentiments are more prevalent there. Uh, in that sense, they're more prevalent in the politics, maybe, mm. in how they work out mm. stuff. I don't know if it's a anti-India. I don't know if I should say it's anti-India, but mm. they are much more sensitive about these issues. Yeah, I, uh, let's talk a little bit more about Nepal because as you said it is an interesting outlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, w- one thing that happened was the blockade and when uh, though it's a little bit far away from people's minds yeah. now the uh, idea that uh, they were uh, reforming their constitution and they didn't like what they termed as Indian interference with mm-hmm. their own sort of national matters. And then you have uh, a lot of reports that come out that Nepal is signing more Belton Road projects that they're building a railway between uh, Lhasa and Kathmandu and you have all of that so how do you sort of manage through all of these yeah, different narratives uh, one part is basically that geography dictates how its policies are hmm. so now basically hmm. Nepal will have to talk to uh, China all the time but at the same time there's a bit of a sanguine or a, i don't know if a sanguine or complacency that basically because it's a, a border with china mm. it's much more difficult it's very difficult to basically even get power lines across to have the railway lines there it's yeah, a yeah. huge huge engineering task compared yeah. to if you had to do the same in the southern border sure so there is a bit of a uh, thinking here that basically what they're saying with china i don't they're not sure how much of it will be actually delivered mm. 
but being china you don't know actually that's true but at the same time they have been i mean if you look at the after the earthquake a lot of the borders were closed mm. it has taken a long long time to actually open them for example the most important border was with tatopani mm. hasn't opened really i am not sure last time i checked it had few weeks ago it had not opened so i think it has not yet opened and there is a sensitivity uh, there is a feeling there that even china is not it will worried about the whole border being too porous mm. because of the you know Tibet, basically, mm. they don't yeah. want too yes. many people coming across from mm. there. So there, in India, at least in the Indian establishment, there are, is a feeling that maybe it's overstated mm. the amount of uh, work, and most of it is basically overstated by the Nepalis themselves mm. to basically get the Indians to you know activate themselves. Yeah, true, work. because Nepal has also for a very long time been pushing for projects. They've been pushing to change some of the treaties that we've signed for them, mm. but then there's also the fact that you know they have a porous border with us mm-hmm. it's it's not even a fully closed border uh, you don't really need visas to visit each other's countries Absolutely. um and you can't take away sort of the people to people connection from nepal i think mm-hmm. um at the same time there were some worries among the nepali uh, think tank researchers that i met uh, but they basically the you know among the younger nepalis for example many of them obviously are now living in the urban areas mm-hmm. that they don't have that much of a connect with india mm. uh, see see obviously people in the borders will be coming across yeah, each yeah, other yeah. but among the younger nepalis is mm. not that much of a connect so i don't know that's what they had expressed apprehension okay. that you know for example china does all these uh, takes all these youths uh, mm. youth uh, leaders so called mm. hundreds of them to for visits to china mm. uh, for weeks or so and that india doesn't do the same of course so you can't really compare the money of course that is yeah, thrown yeah, out yeah. for these kind of tools in that sense yeah i think i mean you still have like a fair portion of like elite nepali students coming to study here but uh, if they are that elite then they would prefer to go to like so a developed yeah, country right like then coming to and they get a lot of fellowships in china also mm. lots of them go there yeah i think like china has been increasing its sort of like education outreach what the us was doing yeah, like exactly. 30 40 years ago it's doing really well now uh, among like not only nepal and like mm. the rest of the south asian countries africa they have so many people from africa i mean even in the rest of the south asia yeah pakistan yeah. is a huge uh, of course contingent there so. Um, so what about um bangladesh uh, bangladesh is right next or they also had elections last year when uh, sheikh hasina won so bangladesh there's always been sort of uh, i don't know like an implicit bias that one party is more that leans more towards yes, india versus uh, the other right yes. Yeah, so uh, Army League is yeah. basically pro India, and the PNP is supposed to be anti India. So, uh, how did that work out in the last elections, or just generally over the last couple of years? Again, I don't think that was uh, the anti India or the pro India issue. Even though the BNP was raising it a lot of times, uh, I don't think that was a major concern for a voter when they go and vote for their, you know, member of parliament or their local politician. That basically she has a policy. which is more pro india mm-hmm. they this want development in the area that's there and, and less corruption i think corruption is a major issue for all people across the south asia so i don't think that's a issue a major but it's a, obviously a very good handle for opposition to when they're doing campaigning and it's quite easy for the bnp to do that because mm-hmm. obviously we have uh, you know there's a relationship between sheikh hasina and the indian political establishment she came when the you know she had stayed at pranamukhi house for a long time 
and Pranab Mukherjee, obviously, the, uh, in the former president mm-hmm. and the former foreign minister, he has a very uh, strong. He has been advising Sheikh Hasina as a for a long, long time. So there is a very close relationship. But if you at the same time, if you look at Hasina and she had, that's why I was talking about the the China visit. She has also been quite um, clever in basically keeping the relationship with China also quite in, uh, intact. Because if you, their military links with China are much, much more stronger than they have with India. Most of the equipment comes from China. And if you uh, see, obviously, because if, uh, the equipment comes from China, most of the training have to be done by Chinese. So they have to go to the Chinese uh, military links. And that and that's what's something that India is kind of working on, trying to get the links. For example, they had this huge contingent of Bangladeshi army officers with their wives mm. so they had hired a plane for them to come to India mm. and then go and visit all the you know do a sightseeing for all because that's a way to basically establish the kind of personal links that you need to have with individual uh, officers and then rapo basically establish rapo with the Bangladeshi army establishment mm. yeah and I think another major issue that came over for Bangladesh personally was the Rohingya refugee crisis mm. and they were the most affected by it mm. because you had millions of Rohingya and flooding mm-hmm. uh, and still living in places like Cox Bazar uh, and uh, India was sort of in some quarters it was seen like India had lost an opportunity uh, there to not only take in refugees but also to help Bangladesh financially uh, or to help uh, mediate with Myanmar uh, so that was something that came up uh, quite a bit I think in the last couple of years yeah because I um, when the whole thing started um after the security crackdown and all the millions of hundreds of Rohingyas, uh, thousands of Rohingyas started streaming into uh, Bangladesh. I don't think India understood the gravity of the situation, in, at least in the strong sense of emotion that it had, you know, uh, generated, uh, not just among the Bangladeshi government, they were reacting also to the public opinion within Bangladesh. And at that time, there was a very strong uh, public opinion that basically India was not helping and India was basically completely pro-Myanmar. Mm. Because at that time, if you remember, um, our Prime Minister had gone to Myanmar at that time. Okay. And he had, uh, when it was happening, within a few weeks. Uh, and he had basically, at that time, he had made a statement standing next to Aung San Suu Kyi, like they do at the joint press conference. Okay. And they had just basically talked about that this is a result of, you know, kind of terrorism. Mm-hmm. There was no response to the, there was no reference to the humanitarian crisis as such and what Bangladesh was going through. So it had led to, after that statement was given, the Bangladesh had basically, you know, intervened. There were calls between the two parties that we are very unhappy. And it's not just that we are unhappy, it's basically we are reacting to what the public are saying. Yeah, yeah. And there was a very strong, and you have to remember, Bangladesh media is quite active, mm. uh, you know. And so even the, all the media pundits and uh, all the talk shows there and the print media, they were all very uh, ex- expressing that basically that, you know, this government is so pro-India. So but why is the Indian government being so pro-Myanmar in this mm. issue? And that's not, I mean, if we are, if the Sheikh Hasina is so pro-India, why is she not getting that kind of support mm. from the New Delhi? So that had led to actually India had to kind of nuance his position mm. after that and had to start talking about the humanitarian crisis. And uh, then it had started, oh, I think it was called Operation My Three, if mm. not mistaken. Okay. Where it had to give, uh, started to give food aid mm-hmm. uh, and give some consignments to the Rohingya uh, refugees there. And then, but it also did the same with that side, mm. that side of the border. Mm. And it was recently, for example, they have announced that they have finished construction of 250 houses there. Okay. 
uh, for supposed to be for the returnees, Rohingya returnees, and also other people who had been uh, displaced during the, from other communities displaced during the you know fighting. So it has been a very uh, they have had to walk a tight rope because here even though India helps them, I mean it's useful for India to. Um, it's a, in a sense, I'll, I'll just say this, for the opposition is a very good handle for mm. them to say that basically, see, even if you're helping India, mm. if you're pro-India, they won't really support you if there's a crisis. Mm. That's what they will say, they yeah, are basically yeah. saying. But at the same time, India knows that the major player here, if anybody can pressure Myanmar, that is China. Mm. And China is actually not doing much. In the whole Rohingya crisis, and that was, in fact, they had uh, before before uh, Hasina had gone to China recently. She had said we'll talk Rohingya crisis to them. She didn't come back with anything. So, in, I mean, I don't know what India can do as a mediator because I don't think we have that leverage there at all. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, but China also like supposedly set up part like some three party talks with Bangladesh and Myanmar. I don't know if it amounted. Yeah. Yes, because at, at this time, the kind of mistrust between uh, Myanmar and Bangladesh is huge. Hmm. I mean, they don't trust each other at all. Also because Myanmar is accusing the Rohingya refugees of being Bangladeshi in origin. Yes, but even Bangladesh actually doesn't use the word technically when they're talking to the Myanmar. They have different ways of diplomatically using the term. Yeah, yeah. Use of the term is not the main issue as such per se. It's basically there's a huge mistrust between the two governments that they don't really understand each other. And in fact, that's what even Bangladeshi diplomats say. They say that even though we have good diplomats there and stuff, but uh, they don't understand Myanmar government and how and how they, you know, they, the two tables are perhaps as quite ignorant of each other and how they perceive the whole situation. Fair enough. And I think, uh, of course, that's something that came up in the elections. But there were also a lot of protests over the last year in Bangladesh, right, against the government, against corruption, against rigging of the elections. The elections are also interesting uh, in Bangladesh and in Sri Lanka. In that sense, they, uh, there was a pressure on the Indian government to deliver on those projects that uh, you know that we had promised to them that billions of dollars of, through the billions of dollars of line of credit, and there will be additional pressure when this election, Sri Lanka elections, also mm-hmm. happens, because again the impression that is given that is uh, again and again said by researchers is basically India promises more than it mm-hmm. does, yeah. and. Again, that and if you are a pro India government, mm. um, then they will you will not exactly get what you are promised. True, and that's the perception that you are. It's also a fair perception. I mean, like I know that the budget is mm. a great way to look at what the external affairs ministry or benchmarks each year. But if you go to like the Exim Bank reports, right, mm. you'll be able to see how much is actually disbursed mm. each year, and that isn't a lot of money, uh, particularly for a lot of these infrastructure constructions which these countries want. Um, and I can see why that would come up in Bangladesh. Uh, what was the project in the Bangladesh? Uh, Bangladesh has a lot of projects, actually, okay. because uh, they have got the largest line of credit that has been given to any other country by okay. India. Hmm. I think that's now amounts to about 2 billion. One was first billion, 1 billion. Hmm. That was the first, the largest ever that it was given. Okay. I think that was un- under Manmohan Singh, hmm. uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Then okay. another one that was given by uh, under Prime Minister Modi also. Hmm. So those things have to be finished because some of the projects that was there from the first line of credit, one million, have mm-hmm. also not been finished. But the pace actually is not too bad. Okay. I mean, if you compare to earlier times, mm. and I know it's not the best benchmark, but mm. the pace is not too bad in mm. that sense. I would say. Okay. South Asia is not an easy place to do projects. In what sense? In that sense, infrastructure-wise, I mean, the acquisition of land. So I mean, the also the mismatch between 
Well, exactly, because you have most of the most of these projects are done by you know Indian PSUs, mm. right? And then they give maybe give it to subcontracted to mm. smaller companies. So the Indian PSUs also have their own pace of doing work. So yeah, and yeah. then only basically if the for example the Ministry of External Affairs uh, person mm. is sitting down and you know cracking the whip, would they mm. perhaps you know move faster than they? used to in that sense so. yeah and also because like indian bureaucracy any bureaucracy is a beast yeah, indian, indian bureaucracy, bureaucracy more so i guess exactly and the bureaucracy in other countries are equally hmm. bad if you look at bangladeshi bureaucracy if you look at nepali bureaucracy of south course. asian bureaucracy i mean that's what i'm saying it's not the easiest of both sides that they are like the nature of the beast is basically to be as slow as possible True, and with things particularly that involve like land acquisition, there's mm-hmm. a huge problem there with all of these countries because even within India, we mm-hmm. have a problem with executing projects just because of land acquisition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can imagine how difficult it must be in places like Bangladesh and Sri Lanka because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this also brings me to sort of the larger, supposedly larger player in uh, South Asia, which is SARC. Mm-hmm. Um, so first there was a thing of, you know, Sark is dead. Sark doesn't do anything. Sark has a lot of criticisms on its mm. plate. Very valid, most of them. But what has Sark been up to for the last couple of years? I think they've just been meeting. They have all mm. these, uh, you know, calendar of meetings at mm. official levels. But that's it. I don't I haven't heard of any ministerial level meetings mm-hmm. uh, which are taking place. And they have a secretaries in Kathmandu. Mm. They have directors from all the countries. And yeah, but again, the secretariat is quite. Uh, Badly resourced, I would say. Mm. So they're doing kind of stalled right now. Mm. So unless you have the biggest country in the region who is interested in uh, pushing forward SARC, mm. and unless you have the next meeting, summit meeting at the leadership level, mm. I don't think SARC is going anywhere. Yeah, and now India has sort of been pushing for BIMSTEC a little more, mm-hmm. particularly because I think... Uh, is because Pakistan is not there. Exactly. So it's easier to A, move things along. Uh, how do you think BIMSTEC is evolved? Do you think it has more momentum? Is it just like a paper tiger? Uh, it has momentum. I think there is money more, money been given. And India has now finally, uh, last year, put a director level person there. Hmm. India had not actually manned the BIMSTEC for a long, long time. Um, so there is certain interest there. And obviously, all the BIMSTEC leaders were you know invited for the swearing in ceremony this time. Mm-hmm. Which is again a signal that they are interested in giving out. But again, it's basically, again, the resources of the BIMSTEC. Like, one of the things that the BIMSTEC Secretariat has been telling its uh, people here that, uh, you know, they have money right now to give, but most of the money is now given out for salaries, basically, mm. for the Secretariat. And for to running the programs is not enough. Mm. So, it's, I mean, it's a little concerning. If you look at the, how mothbound it had been, yeah, yeah. it would be basically, you know, difficult to actually push it forward. Mm. Immediately, it it's, has to be seen. I mean, it will take two, three more. I will give it one more year to basically check out one at least or two years to you know see if it really is effective. Fair enough. So this brings me to like our smallest player mm-hmm. in the region, which is Bhutan. Mm-hmm. Bhutan also had elections last mm-hmm. year, and it's very interesting because mm-hmm. um, they're a kingdom at the end of mm-hmm. the day, uh, and a lot of things have been happening, particularly with Doklam. I would still say they are a kingdom, but they also, you have to look at the political parties have mm. become a very interesting uh, player yeah, in the yeah. whole policy making now. Uh, how so? 
uh, in that sense, I mean, for example, um, the, they have a parliament now. So obviously you have to have elections. If you have elections, that means you need accountability. The whole, why did the whole BBI in, for example, motor vehicles agreement, mm-hmm. which Bhutan was part of, why did it go off the rails? Why did the parliament not agree to it? Mm. It was obviously because there was a lobbying from the ground mm. uh, by the various lobby, like the transport lobby and mm. the, you know, and the hotel, not the hotel lobby, I would say. The trans, basically the la- taxi lobbies mm-hmm. that, you know, we, an environmental lobby also. Mm. That basically if you get the uh, BBI and motor vehicles agreement, it effectively means that you will have Bangladeshi cars mm. and Indian cars. Mm. They're coming into the it, Bhutan and they have very fragile roads mm. uh, and they will basically destroy the ecosystem. That was the whole thinking. So all this is, if there had been maybe a king, uh, uh, you know, there would not been a parliament, it would have been perhaps the agreement had gone forward in that sense. There would have only been one decision maker at that mm. time. So there is a difference. I mean, you have to look at that it is a parliament. There are politicians there. And they are acting like normal politicians. Of course. So Uh, so what were the other sort of debates that came about before the elections in Bhutan? uh, They have a very interesting way of conducting elections. In that sense, they have the consensus between the parties that they will not slander each other. And they will not get into... And basically, written agreement that they will not go into foreign policy and stuff. Okay. And so they don't really talk about that much. Mm. But it was very interesting when I was looking, uh, uh, the uh, you know, but the political parties had the system, but the election commission, mm. especially that they, uh, that they complain to the election commission if there's any violation of this code. Okay. And so if you look at the complaints that had come under this violation of the code, most of it was basically that, you know, they have this WhatsApp group or this Telegram group. And most and somebody had you know talked about how uh, one party is very pro India mm-hmm. or was you know or the other parties basically were, you know pro China and mm-hmm. and even most of the complaints were on that type. Okay. So there was a was the underlying sentiment that basically they were looking at it at different parties as uh, being a close mm-hmm. uh, to one country or the other, one country or another. But ultimately, um, I think most of the again I would say the voters don't really go into that is most of the time the WhatsApp group were basically made by activists, right? Mm-hmm. Political mm-hmm. activists, not by normal voters who are mm-hmm. basically going about their work. Mm-hmm. So they are, it's only basically who people who are very politically act- mm-hmm. aware or partisan mm-hmm. who really are, ge- are getting active in these WhatsApp groups. Mm-hmm. So they, I'm not sure their sentiments are basically what is a reflection of actually is on the ground. So fair enough. And, Something big that happened to Bhutan, of course, is the Doklam crisis. Hmm. So, did that play into the elections at all? Or no? uh, I'm not sure. Again, it's very difficult to uh, establish since I didn't cover actually the mm-hmm. didn't go there. Okay. Uh, so that's why I was looking through the uh, you know the whatever public mm-hmm. source documents that they had. Um, I'm not sure that played too much of a effect on them because finally nothing happened. I mean, the status quo mm-hmm. was maintained, right? Mm-hmm. Now, right, yeah. you know, it came back to normal. Mm-hmm. So, I'm not sure. It, made much of a difference to them except I mean the, the only major issue that there for them is the economy mm. and of course the dependence on India is an issue for them because then they had this rupee crisis the, mm-hmm. if you remember when the whole demonetization thing yes, happens then they you know it affected them mm-hmm. even though India actually had scrambled to do more mm. for Bhutan than it did for Nepal Nepal, yeah. Yeah. Nepal was also very adversely affected, affected but we have not changed the rupees with mm. them because we think that basically Nepali's bank system mm. is not able to, uh, you know, um, it's not if it could be laundered there. Mm. That may maybe they will not have the entirely that, that there would be a good uh, conduit for fake currency. So mm. we have not actually 
ఇంకోటి Uh, put more attention on Bhutan. I think they are quite uh, sanguine about that. Mm. That's also. And uh, even though there is uh, this sense of, I think, among especially the younger Bhutanese, mm. if you look at, because they're very savvy uh, mm. online. Yeah. yeah. They, there is always uh, this, uh, you know, this tension again. It's the same with any young population. Of course. That we, perhaps we should be going, looking at China also. Mm. I mean, they are going to be the biggest economy soon. Of course. And, they would help them also they also also want to go to chinese you know universities yeah yeah so there's a sense of that you know they should be diversifying mm. but that has not yet percolated or the cost benefit for the establishment is firmly right now in favor of uh, india in that sense. and it's obviously also a lot of it dictated by the monarchy there mm. monarchy does have a role mm. and very strong role and the monarchy has always improved india starting with Nehru and yeah yes yeah. so they have a very very long history exactly. of relations with India so as long as the monarchy is very uh, looking at India all the time I don't think we have to worry too much about Bhutan and we are doing a lot of with Bhutan I don't think that's within our capacity mm. uh, because we don't actually have as much infinite money as China seems to have Yeah, yeah. Even the BRI, hearing all the, the BRI projects are not really doing that well. Mm-hmm. In that sense, yeah. I, I didn't really want to get into Pakistan because people talk about Pakistan yeah. day in and day out in yeah. this country. Um, you know, I, I can I just go back to again uh, a bit sure. about China, about uh, the China and the South Asia. One yes. of the interesting things that I was told basically that I was asking some of the South Asian uh, people that, uh, mm-hmm. from other countries and you know, are aware that, you know, for example... Um, India is very strictly about security issues. Mm. So why were you, for example, allowing China to uh, open up, say, an um, embassy in Maldives? Mm. Or, you know, why were you allowing them to come for the submarines? Mm. So basically, one of the things that I think it's a, maybe I don't know if it's a true thing, but one of the things is that basically they said that India had not made it very clear to mm. them when Indian officials meet them. Mm. Because the way Indian uh, diplomats are trained, that we are trained to basically be very careful in our language mm. and do not give the impression that we are interfering and telling you, and basically telling you mm. to do. Mm. So it has to be done in a very inactive phrasing way. Yeah, yeah. So basically, we, are not, we were not sure that you would be so angry with us once mm. we did that. Mm. You never told us clearly that basically if the Chinese had opened the embassy there, mm. that you, know, you would be so unhappy with us. Mm. So I think that's a part of Indian diplomacy, mm. uh, maybe the diplomatic behavior mm. uh, that they were always, the Indian, uh, the neighborhood, basically, they were not very sure about how, uh, you know, India would behave or what were the red lines exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. at that time. I think that seems fair. And I think that would be true of all diplomats generally, because mm. um, if you sort of make that clear, then they'll be looking at it as... who is in there to tell us exactly. who we should take projects from and who we shouldn't yeah um so so maybe that's what i'm saying they are saying it now but i don't i think i'm not sure if it's entirely a valid mm. argument maybe there that's what how they are arguing mm. uh, for india's reaction later on in that sense to basically offset that that makes sense um so when you look at just south asia over the last couple mm. of years where do you think it's sort of heading where do you think in each country 
though i don't can you see i i know we're not in the business of prediction but uh, what do you think could be big issues in the neighborhood i think climate change should be a big issue but mm-hmm. i'm not sure if it's making much of an impact for us because different countries have different priorities here i mean maldives as an indian ocean small indian ocean mm-hmm. island nation has a different position on climate change which is a little different from us mm-hmm. because we are a big developing country yeah 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 so we uh, climate change should be there but i'm not sure we are able to find a common ground on that necessarily mm-hmm. and, and again i don't know if there's a common theme or that i can say mm-hmm. that the all of us are going towards mm-hmm. because everybody's development status is so different and all of us are so different countries mm-hmm. and kind of obsessed with each other i mean for example india is completely obsessed domestically yeah yeah, yeah. right and even i would say sri lanka media if you look at that they're quite obsessed with them mm. i mean to an extent mm. or domestic issues um, bhutan not so much maybe mm. bhutan is dependent on india a lot mm. so they are have to be constantly looking at what delhi is saying on different mm. issues nepal is quite politically active there are so many political parties so they are always looking at who is there what which madhesh party has split up mm-hmm. and who's going with who mm. so it's i don't know if it's uh, economically i think we will uh, all of us will do well mm. and I, i'm not shifting sure uh, all of us do well as in uh, bangladesh seems to be doing pretty well actually mm. yeah. even even at the uh, i mean they don't seem to be as economically meshed with india mm. as say bhutan is mm. because they have a very strong export market mm-hmm. to the west course, yeah, through the yeah, textiles yeah. and so and but other countries for example maldives mm. nepal Sri Lanka to an extent because we have an FTA with mm. them, so uh, they will be looking at how the Indian economy is doing mm. well. So if the Indian economy is not doing as well as the signal seems to be, mm. then it's a sign, it's a sign of worry for them also. Okay, yeah. So let's see. It depends a lot on basically how the Indian domestic scene now politics mm. politics basically moves on, mm. and how the uh, you know the, the oil crisis mm. uh, works on and. So in that sense, can we? I mean, the main issue right now, the the workhorse in the MEA right now would be to get the projects mm. out. You have to finish the projects. The, you have before the elections, for example, in Sri Lanka, you have mm. to get out many of the projects off the ground. Mm. Otherwise, you can't really, you know, Ranil Wickremesinghe can't go and tell anybody. You know, he can't say at the election campaign that what has happened with India. Mm. See, these are the projects I've got from India, but I'm not able able to get them off the ground. Mm. So you have to like show some of them are working. So that's I think the main priority for right now for Sri Lanka would be major to get these projects um, doing something publicly visibly. Yeah, yeah. But let's see when it happens in that sense. But I, again, it's very difficult. It's a very difficult question for me. I'm not sure how to answer it. Uh, uh, no, where it's going. No, that's okay. I I don't think like a we can be in the business of prediction because I don't know mm-hmm. climate change might make sure that we all don't have to predict past tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But uh, also, you can't exclude like. external affairs like you can't exclude what's happening on the global stage mm-hmm. um from what happens in south asia you can't exclude each country's domestic yes I, i mean one we can uh, totally predict is china will continue to be here yeah yeah of course i mean in whatever countries even if there's so called pro india hmm. party um, in in the government they, china will obviously be there because they have the money and they have the wherewithal to do it yeah yeah so and they have enough uh, they're ready to come with investment hmm. 
for example, you see in Maldives what mm. is happening. I mean, uh, even though we have a very uh, friendly government there, but they will continue to be have a relationship with China. I mean, the foreign minister recently was saying how helpful China has been. After Nasheed actually had made some statements yeah, about his yeah, yeah. death coverage, then the foreign minister came back and ruffled, you know, smoothing all these ruffled feathers. Mm. So they will. I mean, you have to. China is a reality, and mm. as it is a reality in the rest of the world, right. it's a reality in South Asia. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Okay, so this is my last question for you. Mm. But what resources would you suggest for anyone who wants to read more about countries in South? Sure. I, I would say first of all, read all the papers, hmm. the regional, their individual papers. Uh, do you have examples for every country? Like, what do you read in Sri Lanka? Uh, Sri Lanka, there's so many papers right now. Hmm. I mean, but you, there's very uh, there's this uh, digital paper called the um, you know Economy Next, which hmm. has very good. It's saying Economy Next, but it has very good uh, political news also. Okay. Then uh, I, there's so many other papers. There's um, Sunday Times uh, is a very good resource. Okay. Uh, their political editor writes this weekly column, which is very detailed, but it's very arcane knowledge in the sense you have to actually, sometimes you require to read it twice, thrice, and it With doesn't get a cup of coffee. Cup of coffee and also because you don't understand the context. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's like uh, they don't kind of give the background sometimes. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult for a person. I mean, I don't understand sometimes what mm-hmm. the person is talking about. I have to go back and read other Google other things, and then okay, okay. I understand what maybe this is all about. So Sunday Times Weekly is pretty good, okay. and then um, FT there's this F- daily FT okay. uh, for economic mm-hmm. news in Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Then the other papers, I mean, there are lots sure. of English papers there. Okay. And what about like the Maldives? Uh, Maldives Independent. Mm-hmm. Then there's uh, the edition mm-hmm. uh, that is a English uh, version of their. Uh, uh, Miharu news basically mm-hmm. that they have then uh, basically that and there are other digital most of they don't have any newspapers there mm. okay. so uh, then the websites they have an English version usually the okay. sun has it mm. uh, VN news has it mm. so but usually the problem with except for Maldives independent uh, most of it again it doesn't give you the context okay. so you have to be no I mean if you read it then you start reading it then you will come to know what they're talking yeah. about yeah and then you obviously, it's very interesting to go and go to their the finance ministry websites and mm-hmm. their you know, own websites to go and check the data. Yeah, yeah. So you have to go to the original data and check them. And most of them nowadays have the, are quite public about the data. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may not be, it will be difficult to sometimes decode what they're saying, mm-hmm. but it is quite, I mean, for example, you can go to Bhutan as very good, the RMA there, okay. the, the central bank, mm-hmm. the Royal Monetary Authority has... Okay weekly, uh, monthly data on the economic indicators, how much that they have owed to India, mm-hmm. you know, how much is the rupee crisis, how mm-hmm. much is the rupees reserves that they have, which is very inter- interesting to read in that sense, mm-hmm. to track over the weeks. That okay, and what like media houses do you follow in Bhutan? Uh, Bhutan has uh, Quensel, which is a kind of a state-owned, mm-hmm. but it's quite, uh, still it's not, even if it's state-owned, but they still have... Um, Quite independent reporting. Okay, that's good. And uh, there's another independent uh, news site called the Bhutanese. Okay, yeah, which you should read. Yeah. yeah, and Bangladesh. Bangladesh has so many actually. They're hmm. Pretty good English papers. Yeah, I mean you have Daily Star, you have Dhaka hmm. Tribune, you have Independent, you have I think the New Age, uh, maybe I've forgotten. But usually I go to uh, Daily Star and Dhaka Tribune on a regular basis most of the time. Then they have I think another one BD News. Okay, twenty four. Okay. Uh, and they have a, if you know Bengali, then you can go and see their uh, channels. Ah, okay, of course. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would help. Yeah, All right. so, Thank you so much, no Devi Rupa. Thank you for talking to me. Thanks a lot. <laughs> 
that brings us to the end of this episode of States of Anarchy. Thanks for staying with us. South Asia is dynamic and diverse and a point that Devi Rupa drives home repeatedly is that relations with India is not always playing on the minds of smaller countries. If you want to read more about what's happening in the region, head on over to the episode description where I have some extra readings for you. If you agreed or disagreed with what we spoke about, tell us. You can just follow the podcast on Twitter at the rate Hamsneeh and on Instagram at the rate States of Anarchy. If you like what you listen to, then do subscribe to States of Anarchy on the IBM podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next Tuesday. This is the amazing story of something awesome. Once Chuck decided to start a podcast, and so he did. The end. Okay, that was a crappy story. But I've got some really cool stories over at my new show, The Origin of Things. On this podcast, I look at the stories of how brands came into being and sometimes evolved out of quite unexpected circumstances. And to make it really fun, I reveal the name of the brand and sometimes a category only at the very end. The show is 5 to 7 minutes per episode and perfect for trivia junkies and brand nerds, especially those with short attention spans. New episodes out every Wednesday on IVM Podcast app or website or any podcast app or site that you happen to prefer. End of story, they lived happily ever after. Namaste, main hu Saurabh Chandra aur main Pranay Kotesthane. Jab mehfil khatam hote hote darwaze ke bahar puliya ke upar hum duniya bhar ki jatil samasyaon ko solve karne mein lag jate hain to ho jati hai puliya bazi. अब आजकल के अपार्टमेंट वालों ने तो कभी पुलिया देखी नहीं होगी पर आप फीलिंग तो समझ ही सकते हैं तो आइए शामिल हो जाइए हमारी पुलियाबाजी में जहां प्रणय और मैं एक से एक इंटरेस्टिंग टॉपिक्स की तह तक जाएंगे आर्टिफिशियल इंटेलिजेंस बिटकॉइन पाकिस्तान मेडिकल एजुकेशन करेंसी क्राइसिस कभी हम दोनों के साथ और अक्सर स्पेशल एक्सपर्ट गेस्ट की कंपनी में सुनिए हमें आईवीएम की वेबसाइट ऐप या अपने फेवरेट पॉडकास्टिंग प्लेटफॉर्म आरोप हर दूसरे हफ्ते 